How many of you have birthdays in December? Is any December birthdays? December birthday, December birthday. Keep your hands up. I need to see the December birthdays. Who is closest to Christmas? And Carol gets more attention. What is it? The 26th. Anybody beat the 26th? The next closest? Who's the next closest? What do you got, Tony? 29th. 23rd? 29th. I I think the 23rd's got to be the worst because it's like, but how many of you Christmas birthday people felt like you got totally stiffed at Christmas? Don't, don't give me that pious nod. Don't give me that. When you were eight years old, you were like, everybody's talking about Jesus, but where are my presents? Come on. <laughs> when we have these moments, this, this, I just can't imagine what it would have been like. But you had to have been thinking to yourself, my brothers and sisters are getting more. Because their birthday is in June. <laughs> well, there is a birthday that we pass over every year. Poor John the Baptist. No attention. No attention at all. And yet, every single gospel begins with what story? John the Baptist. It's the birthday, that's the title of the sermon, by the way, the birthday that no one remembers. And today, today we want to remember, I want to remember John the Baptist because it is an important piece of this story. In fact, it's an imperative piece of the story. It's so important that all four gospel authors begin by telling us a little something about John the Baptist and then giving us something about his ministry. In fact, if you've got your Bibles here today, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, no sweat, just grab one. It looks exactly like this somewhere in the pew in front of you. I am on page uh, 855, 855, and I'm gonna, we're just going to read this story, uh, and I want to stop, and I want to make some, uh, some notations about the story that I think are really, really interesting and really important, but it begins there in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So I'm on verse 6. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And here the Bible puts it delicately they were old. It's important, isn't it, that Luke starts off his story not with Mary, not with Joseph, not with shepherds, not with angels, not with magi traveling from afar. He starts it off with this couple who is advanced in years. And it it, it struck me, actually it struck me this morning, Elizabeth and Zechariah would have been married probably in their early to mid-teenage years, would have just been the tradition, would have been the way things were. I'm imagining that shortly thereafter, Elizabeth would have wanted a child, preferably a son, right? That would have brought honor to her and to the house. And so somewhere, let's say in the range of 18 to 22, she begins praying for a child. And here we heard they are what? Old, advanced in years. Some of you are more delicate than others. She has been praying for year after year. Imagine how many prayers and for how many years 
Elizabeth cried out to God. In fact, she says at one point later on in the story, when she does conceive and become a child, uh, spoiler alert, she says, my shame has been taken away. How long did she feel shame? Year after year after year. And I take something powerful from that. What we read here was that Zechariah and Elizabeth walked rightly before God, and we can call them even blameless. In all of those years of her heart's desire, her yearning desire for a child, and Zechariah's desire for an heir, for a baby that they could hold in their hands, they never gave up on two things. They never gave up on God, and they never gave up on prayer. We tell stories because in them we see heroes that we should emulate. And I don't know how long you've been praying or what you've been praying for, but I would encourage you to imitate their faith. Because it was not right when she was 18. It wasn't right when she was 20 or 25 or 30 or 40 or 45. In fact, it isn't right until Zechariah says, we're too old to even have this happen. That's the moment God is ready to answer the prayer. And whose names are we talking about this morning? Not all of those people that she knew in the past who are popping out babies like that. <laughs> like that. <laughs> like, that's not how it works, but you get the, you get the point. All of those years, she's looking with, with brokenheartedness, probably with jealousy, and God says, I have something for you, wait. 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 And when they had given up almost on everything else except for God and for prayer, God comes in that moment to break through and bring us the one we needed, John the Baptist. Don't give up. Brothers and sisters, don't give up. We're told in this text that they are to walk, that they walked with God and they were to walk blameless. Now, if we were Greek readers, especially Jewish Greek readers, that would ring a bell in our ears. Because you might remember that the Bible originally, the New Testament, what we have here in the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But because Greek had become the language of the world, essentially, uh, the, uh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's something we call the Septuagint. And so the Jews of that time probably would have read their Old Testament in Greek. At least Luke would have, because Luke quotes in this passage directly from Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, he says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. This is literally the exact same words we are given here of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, you might remember a little bit, if you're new to church, this doesn't mean a whole lot to you, and that's okay. But let me give you a little, little tiny background on this. Genesis 17 is an important passage because that is where God finish or be, really sort of inaugurates the covenant in earnest. He changes Abram's name to Abraham because he will be the father of many nations. And he changes Sarai's name to Sarah because Sarah means princess and she will be the princess of many nations. 
And God gives them the covenant of circumcision. The covenant begins to happen. God's promises of breaking into the world and making a people that he will possess for himself so that he can be their God and they will be his people and that they will be a blessing into the world. It actually begins to happen here in Genesis 17. And I want you to notice this. God commands Abraham and Sarah to walk with God and to be blameless. And you remember Abraham and Sarah's track record, don't you? Those of you who, who know the story, you know. And those of you who don't, let me tell you, it's sketchy at best. It's sketchy at best. Here we have a commandment. But in Luke, we have a fulfillment, don't we? He doesn't command Zechariah and Elizabeth to walk blamelessly before him. They are. The promise given back is now lived out amongst the people of God. And I just take this as a a beautiful moment to step back and just look at that faithfulness. And if we take anything from that story, it would be to echo that faithfulness in our own lives. Recognizing that by walking blamelessly before God, walking in his ways, keeping his covenant, keeping his commandments, remembering Jesus, remembering all of these things, God walks with you until that moment when he is ready to break in and do something new. Now it happened, as the story goes on, that uh, it was Zechariah's turn to serve in the temple. And in the temple, if you remember with me, it's kind of a big box, big rectangle, I guess is a better way to put it. Uh, There's two rooms. This front room is larger, and then there's a smaller room in back. And in front of this, this back room is the Holy of Holies where God's presence would dwell. There's a large curtain in front of it. And in front of that curtain is a as an altar with a bowl in it, and the bowl is incense, and they would burn the incense in the morning and in the evening, and it would fill the whole temple with this beautiful, sweet-smelling smoke. And it was Zechariah's turn to go and to light the incense. Their day began in the evening, so it probably was in the evening. He goes in the evening, and he begins to light that Uh, that incense, that bowl of incense. And then we see here, if you'll follow along as you look at your scriptures there, in verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing to the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, which I feel like deserves some comedic timing. Because if I see an angel, I am sore afraid, not troubled. He was troubled And fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, for he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and though disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's a beautiful text. The angel delivers this glorious message uh, to Zechariah. And he alludes in this text to several Old Testament places. And I want you to see that because it gives rich uh, description 
to everything that is happening here. He mentions two Bible characters, one explicitly and one implicitly. Who's the explicit character? Somebody just do that in a southern voice. I want to hear it again. Make it loud. Okay. All right. From now on, I will always hear that in my head. Chelsea, throwing out a southern voice. I like it. Very good. Who's the implicit character? The character not mentioned but alluded to. Does anybody, anybody know? No, but thanks for playing. Samson. Yes. Samson is the other. We often miss this point. We, we first miss this point, the motif of the barren child, or the, of the barren, I'm sorry, the barren mother. We have Abraham and, and uh, Sarah who are going to give birth to Isaac, who is going to fulfill or begin to fulfill the promises, the blessings that God has laid out for the people. And so that we've already seen at work. And now the angel delivers a message to Zechariah and says, I am going to give you a son, and he is going to be a reflective of two important important characteristics. The first is he is not to drink wine or strong drink because from the beginning of his life he is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is an allusion to Samson. Now you might uh, not remember the story of Samson. If you don't, you might remember, uh, or if, if you don't, let me fill that in. First is he is an utter and abysmal failure. Remember that? God empowered him with the spirit and with super strength. He's sort of the superman of the ancient world. These crazy tales throughout the book of Judges. Well, not throughout, in 16 through 18, the book of Judges. And in these, in these stories, Samson is doing all kinds of insane things. He is filled with the spirit, and yet he constantly breaks those oaths, the covenant that he is supposed to have with God. God is going to use Samson to free his people from their enemies. And yet because Samson is unfaithful, God's people remain troubled. But now, now God's people have a light. Somebody who will have the same spirit, power, presence, and ability to deliver God's people from their enemies. And yet, he will actually complete the tasks set before him. The second character that we hear is the character from Elijah. In fact, there's a direct quote here taken. I'll give it to you. Um, no, I won't. Uh, direct quote here taken from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. I'll read it to you. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Do you hear that direct parallel? That we just read here in these verses. A direct parallel between these two texts. That God is going to send Elijah. And you might remember Elijah. Elijah is that figure who stands on Mount Carmel. Who for three years before has declared no rain. And so the land has lived in a drought. Because of the wickedness of the power of Ahab. And the way that they are going. And the people going after idols. And oppressing the poor. And a, um, uh, Elijah stands on Mount Carmel alone. Just him and God. And before him arrayed the people. And arrayed before them the prophets of Baal. The false gods. And empowering them Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah on the mountain in boldness declares God. God's glory, truth, presence, and power over the people. And he calls the people to remember their God. And in his faith, the people remember. And then you might remember after this, he becomes a whiny baby and runs away and says, 
why, God, why? And God says, I'm at work, you just don't see it, which is almost always the case, isn't it? God's funny like that. I know that you're sitting here thinking God's not doing anything. God is at work all around you, all around you. The fact that you can't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. God says to Elijah, I've preserved 400 of my own prophets, my own people, and I'm ready to evoke, and you're going to be the man. And so, anyway, all this is to say Elijah is sort of a hit and miss character. He's great, and then he's not, but we have someone new that's coming in the spirit of Elijah to call the people back so that they are prepared for the Messiah to come, so that they hear the words of repentance and turn their hearts back to God so that when Jesus shows up, the people are ready. In many ways, we need the same thing today. Brothers and sisters, are you really ready for Jesus to come? Are you really ready for Christmas? Are you really ready for the Son of God to show up? Obviously, we're awaiting his second coming. Are we ready for that? Have we turned our hearts back to God in such a way that when God shows up, we just fall lockstep into his ways because we're already practicing practicing them? The point of the prophecy is that when, when, when John the Baptist comes, he gets the people ready so that when Jesus shows up, it's, it's smooth sailing. When Jesus shows up, brothers and sisters, I'm asking you, when Jesus shows up, will we step right in because we've been living his way the whole time? Or have we been rebelling and kicking against the goads? John the Baptist's message is so powerful for today. What God was doing in that day, God is doing again in this day, calling us, calling us back to himself. And so here, let's outline it real quick. You can kind of see these these stories all richly echoing, these Old Testament echoes happening in this story. First, Abraham and Sarah um, happening again with, with, uh, with Zechariah. And Elizabeth, the initiation, the beginning of God's promises, God's ability to do incredible things, God's ability to answer 40-year-old prayers. Isaac, who is the fulfillment of that blessing, who Abraham and Sarah have. Finally, Zechariah and Elizabeth will also have this on the fulfillment of that blessing. Samson, who is called to save the Israelites from their enemies. Now this one that is to come, John the Baptist, is also going to call the people to, fu- to fulfillment, to holiness, to, to being saved from their enemies. The same thing with Elijah here, the prophet, who is calling the people to turn back to God. John the Baptist will echo that. He will echo all of these things. Only rather than hit and miss... Rather than not quite, rather than just the Old Testament law, now it will happen in its fullness, and now we will see God. That's all happening in these few little lines here about the birth of John the Baptist. You might know how the story continues. Uh, Zechariah, true to form, says, I think you forgot, Gabriel. That is biologically impossible. (laughs) And Gabriel says, God made biology. Uh, The angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent, this is verse, I'm sorry, this is verse 19, same chapter, Luke 119. 
The angel answered, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Which speaks of somewhat of a time gap. We don't know how long, how long did it take, how long transpired between Zechariah seeing the angel and Elizabeth conceiving and bearing a son. Uh, it's hard to say. We do know that, um, that at this point we find out that, uh, that Elizabeth does uh, conceive. And then here we enter Mary. The story of Mary begins in Luke. And we're going to pause on that and, and we'll put that off for a week. Uh, but as the story of John the Baptist's life and his, his conception and birth happen, uh, what happens is in the story continues in verse 62 of the same chapter. And in verse 62, uh, they are asking what to name this child. Obviously, all of the, the birthing and all that stuff has happened. What to name the child. And they ask Elizabeth who can talk, Zechariah who can't, which just has to be maddening for him. But Elizabeth's got to be like, finally, Lord. And she answers, John. And they say, well, that's not a family name, so they dismiss her, and they ask the father, and he probably would have had a clay tablet that would have been semi-moistened so that he could write in it and erase it, so he would have written in that tablet um, and then be able to, so they made, you know, how do we, what do we, what do we, what do we call him, and he begins to write out his name is John, and at that moment, his tongue is loosed. His tongue is loose. Sort of interesting applications we can make there, but... What happens more beautifully here is in verse 67 where uh, he begins to prophesy after his tongue is loosed over this, over this child, this hope that is now fulfilled in their presence, this desire not only of him but of all of the nations of the world who have dwelled in darkness. He now looks upon hope. We call this traditionally benedictus, which is uh, Latin for benediction. This is a blessing. That Zechariah gives to God and to his child. And he says this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, to the forgiveness, in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think that's quite lovely. And if you're new to church, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are happening here, all kinds of Old Testament allusions, and I won't go into all of those things, but I see here something that is universal. There is something universal in us that recognizes, I believe, 
our need to be saved from our enemies. Our oldest enemy is death. And we do everything to fight that enemy, don't we? And why are we so afraid of death? Why are we so afraid of death? If all that's left after death is just nothingness, well, then you take a large nap. Who cares? In fact, if you're a parent here today, (laughs) that might be the best news you've heard. But something in us tells us that's not true. Something in us tells us that there is more. Something in us even tells us there's something to be afraid of. That afraid bit in us is that recognition of judgment. That recognition that we do, in fact, need to be saved, not only from our enemies, but in some way forgiven, healed, because there is something in me that is, and here I'm just confessing, I'm not orating, there is something in Jordan that is fundamentally screwed up and broken. And when I am alone with myself, I can see it like I see my face in the mirror. And I know that I need someone to fix it. Because try as I might, and I have tried, I cannot fix it. And Zechariah declares that someone has come to prepare the way for the one who has the answer. Because the last line in that beautiful benediction, that beautiful blessing, is a word that every single person on the face of the planet desires. Peace. And God has revealed the path. It is hidden from none of you today. Maybe the rest of the world is in darkness, but you have seen light. You have heard Jesus declared to you today. You've heard his name saying, you have heard his body and his broken shed for you. You know the truth, even if it is just a glimmer. There is no excuse. There is only hope. You'll notice that of all the rhetoric we hear these days about an angry um, God or uh, unrighteous Christians, there's a lot of vitriol, a lot of doubt. But the scriptures declare this, that our God is the one who declared mercy to our forefathers. And our God is the one who has revealed mercy in Jesus Christ. And our God is the one who reaches out to you through those scriptures today to prick your heart and call to you to recognize his mercy. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is why we don't forget this birthday. We might forget carols, but we ought not forget John the Baptist because his message is as pertinent today as it was then. And so I thought about how to end this, and I thought I would end with um, with a line um, that I think, uh, with a little section of Colossians that describes in some way the path that Zechariah and Elizabeth were on. And as you hear these words, I'd entreat you to judge your heart and your life 
And ask the question, if you are walking in that way, and if you aren't walking in that way, what do you need to do to walk in that way? Because Paul calls the church forward, and he says this, Put on, then, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved Who's called you this week, holy and beloved? Anyone call you? Let me call you this week, holy and beloved. You've heard lots of lies about what it is to be human, lots of lies about who you are from maybe other people, maybe people very close to you. The scriptures call you in Christ, holy and beloved. So because you are holy and because you are beloved, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule over your lives, over your hearts, to which you were called together into this body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts. And whatever you do this week, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let's stand as we sing.